Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 68 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Alistair Reynolds. He's a scientist who worked for the European Space Agency and also the author of over a dozen novels, including the Revelation Space series. His latest book, Blue Remembered Earth, is about a pair of siblings from a wealthy African family who traveled the solar system in order to unravel their grandmother's mysterious legacy. Then stick around after the interview as guest geek Matt London joins us to discuss Hollywood adaptations of the novels and stories of Philip K. Dick. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Alistair Reynolds. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so first of all, your new novel is called Blue Remembered Earth. What's it about? Well, this is a big departure for me. It's my attempt to get back to something a little bit closer to the present in terms of the way I think about science fiction. So it's a, it's a novel which looks at where we might be in 150 years in terms of going out into the solar system, going back to the moon and Mars, but also looking at the Earth, the kind of trends that we might expect to see over the next century and a half on our own planet. Things like artificial intelligence, genetic engineering, sort of ubiquitous surveillance technology, all that kind of stuff's gone into the mix. And the story, it centers around the Akinyas, which are a wealthy family from Tanzania. So why did you decide to put that focus on Africa? I had an idea for doing a sequence of books that would look at space exploration from a fairly should we say, realistic standpoint, not, not too many crazy gadgets or magic sort of physics coming into it. And I wanted to put a, a slightly different spin on it, because I think a lot of that stuff's been done before. There's lots of novels about colonizing the solar system. And at the time that I was thinking about that, I was also listening to a lot of world music, and particularly a lot of African music, West African music, actually, as it happened. I, I loved that music. I fell in love with it over a period of time and just basically listened to nothing else. And one day the penny sort of dropped. Why not just do a novel where Africa is the sort of dominant uh, technological powerhouse of, of the future? We've had science fiction novels where China is dominant. We've had novels where India is dominant. And it's all, I suppose it's all about getting away from that sort of cliched old, tired idea that the future belongs to the West. So I was kind of excited by that. And I, I like the idea of taking a set of sort of African protagonists and and exploring them across more than one generation. Okay, so you mentioned that there have been a number of novels set within the solar system. Uh, we just interviewed Kim Stanley Robinson about his book 2312 was one of those. Uh, do you think there is sort of a trend toward that right now? And if so, why? I was really impressed by 2312. And it's one of those things where you start reading, and you think, well, why did he decide to write this novel at the same time that I wrote mine? And I guess it's just things are in the air, and you, you sort of respond to things. For me, it was the celebrations that started around about 2008 when people started thinking about the 40th anniversary of the Apollo landings. And of course, with the death of Neil Armstrong, that's something that will sort of come back into the news again. And for me, it was sort of a natural point to start thinking about a, a, a novel set in the solar system rather than often, you know, often around some distant star. And I, you know, I'd, well, I suppose Kim Stanley Robinson has been mining that particular scene for years and years, as you say, with, with the Mars trilogy. Um, so I think it's sort of a, a natural continuation. 
Whenever people mention 2312 and Blue Remembered Earth, there's another book. Is it um, Leviathan Wakes, which I think is oh. also, mm-hmm. also essentially set in the solar system? Well, of course, there's uh, Paul McCauley's Quiet War sequence, which does sort of catapult out into interstellar space later on, but the first two books are entirely set within the solar system. So you've worked as both a space scientist and a science fiction author. Uh, how much of a feedback loop have you observed between the two? Well, speaking for myself, I really struggle to sort of pinpoint whether I became a scientist because I like science fiction, or did I sort of gravitate to science fiction because I sort of identified strongly with scientists. I don't know. It's been there all you know, right through my life. I think I set myself on a course to become a scientist round about the time that Carl Sagan's Cosmos series was on television, and that, you know, there was really no going back for me at that point. And then I went on to study space science, and then get my PhD, then go abroad and work in the European Space Agency. But the thing that surprised me with regard to the sort of crosstalk between science and science fiction, when I kind of came out about being a science fiction writer, a lot of my colleagues who I'd never previously suspected of of having any interest in science fiction, many of them turned out to be avid science fiction readers with sort of extensive knowledge of science fiction. And that was very interesting to me. I've been sort of, ever since then, I've been keeping a quiet eye on this whole whole business of how science and science fiction talk to each other, particularly in the sort of areas of space science. Uh, So how closely have you been following the current Mars rover mission, and uh, how significant do you think that is? I've been following it since the point where, (laughs) not only when they launched it, but as soon as I found out about this sky crane landing maneuver, I just thought this is just the most insane audacious thing anyone's ever attempted and there's no no possible way it's going to work but it did work and it, and it, it was a phenomenal achievement I think to, to land this enormous complex piece of machinery on Mars and so far uh, you know everything seems to have gone without a hitch and it's beginning to do science and just today they've released some absolutely remarkable high resolution images of the surface of Mars it's phenomenal I mean on one level I'm slightly disappointed that there aren't people on Mars already. When I was a kid, I was reliably informed that we'd have gone to Mars by 1985. And of course, it's 2012. and We're still really no closer to a human expedition to Mars. But that shouldn't detract from the the amazing achievements that are are sort of being done on a day-to-day basis by robotic envoys. When you said, actually, that you were disappointed that there weren't already people on Mars, I thought at first you meant, like, Deja Thoris or something. <laughs> like, like what, sorry? Deja Thoris? Uh, <laughs> from uh, John Carter of Mars, the... Oh, princess. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, mean, I think I, I kind of grew up with the expectation that we would have gone beyond Earth orbit by now and, you know, returned to the moon. And, you know, e- even in the 90s, there was sort of talk of manned expeditions to Mars, and you sort of slowly did the penny drops. This isn't going to happen anytime soon, I think. But there, you know, there are all sorts of encouraging noises coming from different directions at the moment. I mean, Elon Musk is talking about going to Mars much sooner than people expect, and I, you know, I'm genuinely interested to see where these uh, sort of private initiatives take us. Actually, you know, speaking of Elon Musk, I recently attended a lecture by Howard Bloom on the commercialization of space, and from what he said, he was basically saying that we all need to get behind Elon Musk. Uh, because that's really America's only shot at a robust space program. And if we don't, the Chinese are going to beat us to the asteroids and gain just an insurmountable economic advantage. Uh, what do you think about that idea? 
Well, I, I don't particularly care who plants these flags on things. You know, I mean, if, if the Chinese are the first to the asteroids or the first to Mars, I mean, good for them. I mean, as far, as far as I'm concerned. But, yeah, it's clear that Musk has, at the moment, has, you know, he has the, the, the vision and, and, and the capital to make significant things happen. I mean, my natural sympathies tend to lie, because I was a, a scientist working with a, uh, an, an international space agency, I, you know, I would have liked to have seen a more concerted international effort to do these things through, through sort of um, space agencies. But if that can't be made to work, as increasingly seems to be the case, then so be it. And uh, I shall uh, be excited about private initiatives. Uh, so your Revelation Space Universe is distinctive for having no faster-than-light travel. Um, what are some of the challenges and considerations uh, of writing space opera with no FTL? When I started writing the, the Revelation Space book, the first thing is I'd already written two novels in the teens that were full of, I, I suppose, the stock furniture of science fiction. They had sort of hyperdrives and force fields and tractor beams and all that stuff in it. And around about the time that I was writing the second one, I started reading more sort of hard science fiction, I suppose, and books by people like Gregory Bentford and Robert Forward, where there was a, a tendency to sort of try and keep the science a little bit more plausible. And I started thinking, well, the next book I write, I'm not going to have any of that stuff in. I'm going to just trying to keep the physics as believable as possible. So it was a sort of natural challenge for me to try and write a, a, a space opera with, without fast and light travel. But I, I never found it particularly constraining because, okay, it sort of eliminates certain storylines. There, there are certain things you can't do in that kind of framework. But at the same time, it opens lots of other possibilities. You can have stories about people leaving their planet and not coming back for 100 years because they've been traveling at the speed of light. And you know, one door closes and another opens. So I've always found it perfectly liberating as a writer to to work within that kind of framework. It's never felt stifling to me. Uh, so getting back to Blue Remembered Earth, uh, a major theme of the book is uh, the conflict over whether humans or robots will be the ones to travel the stars. Uh, how do you feel about that yourself? First of all, is the question of should we spend any money at all on space exploration, which I think is really stupid because as a society, we spend almost nothing on space exploration. You know, we spend more money on chocolate as a species than, than space exploration. And we certainly spend far more on wars and militarism than, than we do on space exploration. So, I, you know, I have no time for that argument. But I think it's a far more interesting and sort of nuanced question is the one of whether we should be sending robotic envoys or whether we should be sending people. And I can see very, very strong arguments from both sides. I was an astronomer for many years, and astronomers... By and large, and this is a, this is a generalization, they do tend to come down on the, on the sort of robot uh, side of the coin because they tend to perceive that they could be doing lots more interesting things in the solar system in terms of space probes and telescopes and, and things like that if all this money wasn't sort of wasted on things like space shuttles and space stations. But as a science fiction writer, of course, I'm massively excited by the idea of sending human beings into space. I mean, I just, I mean, just a couple of nights ago, I watched the International Space Station glide over my house. And to think that there are six people up there, there's a permanent human presence in orbit around our planet, is, it gives me an enormous kick. And I, I'm very, I feel very privileged to be alive at a point where I can actually look into the sky and see people up there. And I, I would hate that not to be the case. But I think from a science fictional perspective in, in, you know, with something like the Blue Remembered Earth books, I'm actually trying to suggest a third way, which is that the notion I think that will become apparent as the books progress is that there will be a kind of convergence, which I think is could well be the case, where 
in effect, our, our robotic envoys become steadily more sophisticated and more autonomous. And we've already seen the sort of the, the first glimmerings of this with things like the Curiosity probe, where you have these these highly sophisticated robots that we're sending to other planets, other parts of the solar system, where they have to operate to some extent independently of human control because of the time lag issues. So we have to make these things smart, and we will only make them smarter in the future. And at the same time, as we send people into space, we may well find that because of the the innate hostility of the environment, we may have to make people perhaps a little bit more mechanical, a little bit more like machines, uh, not in a sort of horrible clanking fashion. But we may have to explore uh, different ideas about mind augmentation, human augmentation. Well, yeah, and I mean, one character in the book actually comments that in time, the distinction between humans and robots will come to seem as insignificant as the difference between Protestants and Catholics. Uh, does that... Yes, and a, a, a very good friend of mine who's, uh, who's read a number of my books and is a, a Catholic scholar said, I, I take offense with that. <laughs> <laughs> it is, you, you know, you cannot trivialize these things, uh, which, I, which I was uh, very amused by. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I, that was a flippant line of dialogue, which was really was, I, I just wanted to sort of try and articulate the, the standpoint of someone living a few hundred years from now, looking back at some of the sort of ideological arguments we have today. Just as we look, sometimes we look back on sort of 18th century ideological arguments, we think, how could they have been so sort of narrow-minded? Okay, I mean, another aspect of the book is that it presents a future Earth on which crime has been eliminated by constant surveillance. Uh, we also, we actually just interviewed David Brin, who wrote a book called The Transparent Society, basically advocating for that. Is that uh, something you'd advocate for as well? I can see lots of positives to having, should we say, you know, universal ubiquitous surveillance at all times. You, you would never have a situation where, say, a child wandered away from its home and came to harm. That would simply not happen if we could tag every sort of human person on the planet and, and know where they were at any one time, then lots of crimes simply evaporate. Lots of misfortunes simply would not be able to happen anymore. But of course, then that takes us into sort of murky areas of civil liberties and personal freedom and privacy. And particularly in Britain, we have a, they say you can't walk out of your house in Britain without showing up on a CCTV camera several times a day. Whether that is going to lead to a, a regimented police state or whether it will just, we will just accept it and we will gradually become a safer society, I think these are, it, it's too soon to tell. But it's, for me, it's an interesting area to explore in science fiction. The technical problem I had in the book was that there was very little way for me to come at the idea of this massively wired up, highly surveilled society unless there was something to counterpoint it. And I thought, well, I, if I have a little pocket on the moon where they have the exact opposite approach, then I can actually have a kind of debate about the whole thing and I can be sort of allowed for that possibility of discussing the whole issue in a plausible way. Given that the story has kind of, it's full of um, intrigue and, and conspiracies and things like that, was it really a, a nightmare trying to tell that sort of story given the uh, universal surveillance situation on Earth? Well, I, I set myself partly as a reaction to a couple of books that I'd sort of written recently, I decided that I would keep the on-screen, on-page on violence as low as possible in this book. And I didn't want a scene where, you know, people are sort of shooting each other with ray guns or things blowing up. I mean, a certain number of things do blow up at various points in the book, but I think it's quite moderate compared to some of the things I've done recently. And 
that for me was uh, an, in, an interesting challenge to see if I could write a book where there wasn't an awful lot of violence on the page. And I, quite aside from the technicalities of writing about this society where these things aren't possible, I was also sort of thinking back to the classic science fiction of, say, Arthur C. Clarke, his sort of classic books of the 50s, like Earthrise and Deep Range and The Sands of Mars, and, and going right through to the, you know, the 60s and the 70s as well, with things like Phantoms of Paradise, where, for me, these books were genuine page-turners. I mean, I, I just found them massively exciting and, and thrilling novels, but it wasn't... You know, there's a distinct absence of, of violence and thriller elements and melodrama in these novels. I mean, the sort of the motor of the story tended to come from the, the sort of mysteries that the characters were confronted with. The universe, if you like, was the uh, the big bad guy, rather than say having some cartoon villains cropping up every few chapters. So I really like to kind of creep a little bit closer to that model in my science fiction, and this seemed as good a time as any to try it. The book contains some invented terminology, such as chinging and voking. Uh, when you're coming up with terms like that, what's your approach to, to that? I'm always a little bit cautious around invented terminology because so much science fiction is off-putting to the sort of the uninitiated. You know, you, you open up the first page and it's full of all these made-up words. So I try and keep a lid on it, if at all possible. But at the same time, I'm thinking about a society in which these fairly novel technologies are utterly commonplace and. It wouldn't make sense for the characters to say, I use the remote telepresence technology to communicate with so-and-so. They'd have a, a more economical way of saying that. So what I usually do, I just put placeholders in into the text, and then you know, at some point a better idea might occur to me, or it might not, and I go back. And um, I have a big whiteboard above my desk where I, if I have even a half of a good idea, I write it down on the whiteboard and see if I like it sort of a few weeks later. I knew that I wanted to have a sort of advanced telepresence technology in this, these books, which I think is actually quite plausible. The idea that you can sort of project your, your yourself, if you like, into another receptacle, be it another human being or a robot or even thin air. And this is all mediated through implant technology. And I just started thinking about, well, it's a kind of virtual reality. And then I remembered that in the sort of 90s, a lot of people were talking about virtuing as a sort of um, a sort of shorthand for virtual reality technology, I thought virtual. If it, they wouldn't say virtual, they'd shorten it even more than that. They'd say ching. So that was where ching came from. And the other thing was that the voking, and that was just a way of avoiding saying subvocalization or you know every third paragraph. So one character in the book is a businessman uh, who's installed an empathy shunt, uh, so he can turn off his empathy when making business decisions. Uh, in effect, turning himself into a sociopath. Uh, what do you think about that idea? I created these two brothers who were both highly corporate individuals involved in the running of the family business. And I wanted, basically, I, want, I wanted to distinguish one from the other. And I thought, well, if one of them's a, a complete sort of corporate idiot, I'll make the other one 20 times worse. I think I must have read, had I read an article in, in Scientific American or something about empathy? And, you know, there's also this ongoing thing about, uh, you know, psychopaths or sociopaths who rise to positions of high influence in society, whether it's sort of CEOs of big companies or movers and shakers in, in Hollywood, whatever it is. But that interested me. And I thought, well, you know, what if the guy could actually press a button and become more sociopathic? 
when he needs to. What if he's actually quite a nice guy, but when he needs to go into the boardroom and make the cutthroat killer deal, he can actually turn off his empathy. He doesn't worry about sort of shafting the little guy anymore. And I thought, well, that that might work. Uh, so, I mean, probably one of my favorite moments in science fiction is the scene in Revelation Space where a character survives being shoved into an elevator shaft. Could you just talk about how you came up with that idea? This is the scene where one of the characters is in a very long spaceship with a sort of central elevator shaft, a bit like the spaceship in Dark Star, and she falls down it. And she realizes that she's not actually falling at that point. She's actually stationary with respect to the rest of the universe. And it was just the, the sort of idea pops into her head in the sort of seconds that she has remaining before she hits the bottom of the shaft. But if she can actually access the engines of the spaceship, she can make it reverse and the ship will stop falling at that point and she, she'll be saved. Uh, I mean, because I did physics in school. One of the um, the classic thought experiments that comes up when you're talking about the equivalence principle is if you're in a rocket with no windows, what sort of experiments could you perform to tell that you're actually not in a rocket, that you're just on in, in a little metal room on the surface of a planet? You know, all that sort of stuff is interesting. There are, there are other thought experiments that involve experiments, uh, things that you could do in an elevator. Um, that would determine whether you're actually falling or whether you're weightless. If, if you're in an elevator and things are floating around inside, does that mean you're actually falling down the elevator shaft or are you actually drifting off in deep space? And are there experiments that you could actually perform to distinguish between the two? So all that stuff was sort of floating around in my brain and it just seemed a character sort of falling down a lift shaft seemed like a, a good way to bring home to the reader the idea that the frames of reference are important in this novel, and we're, we're trying to keep reasonably close to Newtonian physics or Einsteinian physics rather than sort of Star Trek physics. Uh, you also wrote a short story that I really enjoyed called Understanding Space and Time, which is sort of about a guy who wants to understand everything about the universe, and his mind becomes so big that actually it's in danger of collapsing from the force of its own gravity. Yeah. And I understand that that story originally appeared in a convention booklet. Yeah. I mean, the process of writing that story was very, very convoluted. I was in work one day when I was still a space scientist, and I'd had an approach, uh, an email had popped into my mailbox from Nature, the sort of prestigious science magazine. They basically decided they were going to run short science fiction art, uh, stories. And I, I forget what the word length was, whether it was 600 words or 1,200 words, but it was certainly no more than that. And I'd never written anything remotely as short as what they needed. So I thought about it, and I thought, oh, I don't know if I can. And I, I was cycling home, and this idea came into my head about this man, the last man on Mars, uh, and all sorts of weird things happened to him, and he ends up trying to understand the universe. So I got home, and I wrote the story in a sort of blind rush of inspiration. But it had to be done quickly anyway, because there was a very tight deadline. But I could not get the damn thing to fit the required word length. So I went back in the morning and I emailed uh, Nature. I said, well, I've got this story, but it's a bit long. Um, I'll, I'll send it to you anyway, and then you can decide what you do with it. So I sent them the story, and uh, that, that was that. And then I was cycling home again later that evening. I, hang on, I've, I've had a better idea now. I've got a story that really does fit 600 words. So I wrote that one instead and sent the shorter story, which was completely unrelated, to Nature, and they ran the short story. So then I had this um, this other story, which I didn't know what to do with. So I took it 
back home with me and I, I fiddled with it over a period of time trying to find a way to make something of it and I added a bit to it and took a bit away and added a bit more and it, it never really uh, caught fire and I was just left with these sort of story fragments that weren't going anywhere and that was probably a good five years before I finished it and then what happened was as you say I was scheduled to be guest of honour at uh, a, a regional British science fiction convention called NovaCon which takes place in uh, the Midlands in November every year. And the tradition at Novacon is that the guest of honor provides a story, maybe of novella length or novelette length, which is then printed and distributed as a souvenir chapbook for the people who attend the convention. So I had to write the story, and I, uh, time was, was sort of ticking on, and you know I had months and months to think about it, and it seems a long way in the future, and then, then it was suddenly not months and months, it was two months, then it was one month, and it was like, damn, I'd better, I'd better come up with something. In desperation, I looked into my files on my computer, and I found the fragments of this earlier story, um, Understanding Space and Time. And at that, that point, I thought, hang on, I know exactly what I need to do to that story. It just suddenly, um, you know, I'd had enough time away from it to see it with a fresh eye, and I, I knew that I could make something of it. The coda to this story is then I then got married and then I went off on my honeymoon with my wife. And um, I basically wrote that story on honeymoon, which uh, was uh, <laughs> maybe not the smartest thing to do. But I, basically every morning, um, I would um, leave the hotel, go down to the beach or whatever. And then I would just spend a couple of hours fiddling with that story until, I got, until I'd uh, added a few thousand words, whatever it was. And then I'd be done with it and then I'd, I'd spend the rest of the day uh, enjoying myself properly with my wife. But I did finish the story in the end. I finished in time for the convention and they, they published it as a chapbook. I always quite liked it. I was quite quite taken with that story after I wrote it and it's still one of my favourites. Uh, yeah, and actually speaking of conventions, uh, in the past few days there's been some talk online about trying to organise a Revelation Space Convention in London. Um, have you been following that at all? Yes, I've been following it on Twitter and I think it's, uh, I mean, good luck to them. I mean, if they can... <laughs> I mean, I'm sort of astonished that there's, you know, that level of interest that people feel that it's something uh, worth doing. But if they do get, uh, you know, this, I think it'll be like a mini convention, like a one-day uh, meetup, and I'll, you know, I'll do, I'll do my utmost to um, to support it and go along. I mean, I'm, I, I would say I'm skeptical, but I, you know, I routinely do book signings in, in, around the country and, and readings and, and uh, talks about, you know, on different topics which are well publicized, well in advance. And you know, sometimes hardly anyone turns up to these things. So I, I'm sort of quite hardened and <laughs> not, not, I'm not in exactly convinced that there are huge numbers of people out there who would, who would go on to something like that. But perhaps there are. Perhaps I'm wrong. All right, so you might be a little sick of this question, but we had a bunch of listeners who want to know if there will be more Revelation Space books and or a Revelation Space movie. Well, there'll certainly be more Revelation Space stories. I mean, I, I, I can't say that often enough. I mean, I, it's my baby. <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoy writing those stories enormously, and I enjoy writing the novels, but I did need to get away from it for a bit. I never wanted to be a particular type of science fiction writer. I wanted to be like Harry Harrison or James White or Philip K. Dick, someone who operates across the whole of science fiction and does, does a bit of this and a bit of that. Um, so I felt I needed to get away from the Revelation Space stuff for a while and sort of plant a few flags elsewhere in, in the genre. But that doesn't mean I've forsaken it by any means. So it's certainly, 
it is harder and harder to tell a new story in a, a framework, a fictional universe where you've already made up lots of stuff. It does become more difficult. The sort of narrative airspace gets very congested. And it's hard to sort of slot a new story in there without sort of tangling yourself up with contradictions. But I fully intend to do so. I mean, I, I, I do enjoy writing, writing in that universe. In terms of uh, a film, I mean, there's, there's not really been any significant sustained interest in the television or filmic media to date. I mean, a bit of nibbles of interest occasionally, but things just don't go anywhere. And I, I'm, I'm completely hardened to it. I mean, the, the reason I'm a science fiction writer, a prose writer, is because I want to write prose science fiction. And if sort of being involved in sort of science fiction movie making was the thing that, that motivated me, I, I would have tried to become a science fiction movie maker. It'd be nice if it happened, but it's not something that keeps me awake at night. Um, but uh, yeah, at the moment, there's not, there's not really anything going on. There's a few sort of things bubbling away in the background, but they're, they're, I think they're mostly connected to other properties that are not related to the Revelation Space Universe. I mean, people often say, well, oh, of course, they, could, they couldn't film them because there's no way they could afford the effects budget. But I think that's a bit of a red herring, because if you look at, you know, even something like Doctor Who now, which I, I, I accept Doctor Who is made with a large budget by television standards, but there's really nothing they can't show these days using CGI. You know, I have problems with CGI, but it does mean that they can pretty much do any kind of science fiction, I think, these days on, on a sort of an acceptable budget. Uh, speaking of Doctor Who, you recently wrote a Doctor Who novel. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I was thrilled when BBC Books approached me and said, by my agent, they said, would you be interested in writing a Doctor Who novel? And I was absolutely jumping out of my chair because I'd always, always wanted to be involved with Doctor Who on some level, but I didn't want to sort of go groveling around <laughs> asking, <laughs> to, asking to do something. They said, well, we're, we're sort of relaunching the idea of classic Doctor Who novels, as in books involving the earlier incarnations of Doctor Who, and you can basically take your pick as to which one you want to do. And there was no question for me that, I, that it was going to be John Pertwee, the, the third Doctor. My theory is, you know, you, the Doctor who you, you, you identify with is probably the one that was on television when you were seven, as far as I'm concerned. But it was absolutely, um, you know, no question about it. I, I was going to write a Doctor Who novel with John Pertwee. And I had a lot of fun with it. I mean, it, it, it's a very different, a very different process than writing, uh, a, you know, a book in my normal mode as a science fiction writer, because essentially when you start writing a, a normal science fiction novel, absolutely anything is up for grabs. You can kill off any character quite arbitrarily at any point in the narrative. But of course, when you're working with established characters from a, from a television format, you have to, to some extent, accept the limitations that come with that form. But I, you know, I sort of knew that as I went into it, and it wasn't, uh, I didn't regard that as a problem, I just regarded it as a challenge. Also, because thematically, I, I, a large part of the book is set on Earth in the 20th century, which I've not generally done before in my fiction, and that, that was interesting. But there's quite a bit of sort of space operatic stuff in there. There's lots of stuff about time travel and alien civilizations and ancient superweapons, that kind of stuff. So I, I was able to scratch a lot of the itches that, that, I, that I end up scratching in my normal science fiction. Well, and actually, you mentioned Philip K. Dick, and for our panel following this interview, we were planning to talk about, since the Total Recall remake just came out, we were planning to talk about the ways in which Hollywood has adapted Philip K. Dick's stories. Do you have any just sort of thoughts on... Yeah, I mean, I, I love Dick. I mean, I'm particularly... I'm not particularly well-read in the novels, but I've read all the short stories, and Dick's stuff is just 
soaked into me on a, on a deep level, I think. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I love Blade Runner. I love Verhoeven's film Total Recall, but to what extent? I mean, I've read We Can Remember It View Wholesale, and I don't really know. It, it's got very little to do with the film. But the film is great. I, lo- I genuinely love uh, Verhoeven's films. And I see, you know, I, I was just aghast when I hear that they were remaking it. I thought, what? what's the point? Why? Why remake a? I mean, remake you, you. You can either remake a really old film and bring it up to date, or you can remake, remake a crappy film and do better. But the idea of making a film that's still relatively fresh, I think, in people's memories. Um, I mean, t- Total Recall is not that old. It's, it's just completely crackers. I mean, it's just a sort of the, the lack of imagination of these people that all they can think about is remaking twenty-year-old science fiction properties. It just beggars belief. All right, great. And so then finally, just uh, are there any other new or upcoming projects you'd like to mention? Well, at the moment, I'm hard at work on the follow-up to Blue Remembered Earth, which will be called On the Steel Breeze. And this is a book that picks up the threads of the Akinya family. So we're, we're, we're still in the same universe. We're still dealing with this powerful African family. But we're now 150 years on from, from Blue Remembered Earth. And in fact, the the scope of the book takes us a lot further into the future. The action within Blue Remembered Earth was confined entirely to the solar system, but at the end of the book there were sort of narrative hooks in place that would imply that we were going to sort of move beyond the solar system into interstellar space, and that's what I grapple with in, in the sequel, On the Steel Breeze. It's about interstellar colonization, again told from, I, I hope, a relatively sober, realistic perspective. So it's interstellar travel but it's again very slow it takes hundreds of years to get anywhere and i hope that um i can develop some of the themes that were in blue remember the ideas about artificial intelligence the elephants come into this book but in in a way that i hope is surprising and again we see a little bit more of the kenya family but a generation later and i hope i mean i'm still enjoying it and uh, i hope that some of that enthusiasm communicates to the reader all right great so, Alistair Reynolds, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you for having me. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Alistair Reynolds for joining us on the show. For the text of that interview, please visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on Transcripts. And we'd really appreciate it if listeners would link to those transcripts on Facebook and Twitter so that your friends who don't listen to any podcasts will know to go check them out. And as we mentioned for our panel today, we'll be discussing Hollywood adaptations of the novels and stories of Philip K. Dick. And we're joined by a special guest geek, Matt London. He's the creator of Space Pirates in Space, an animated web series coming soon to an internet near you. And you can follow him on Twitter at TheMattLondon. So Matt, welcome to the show. Great to be here, guys. Okay, and you know, we're going to be talking about Philip K. Dick. And the reason as obviously this is coming up now is because of this Total Recall remake that just came out. And we had previously discussed this back in episode 52, and Matt was saying just that given the director and writers involved, it was almost certainly not going to be great. <laughs> uh, and so I had kind of given up hope for it. But then the trailer came out, and it looked really, really cool. So I had some hope that maybe they were going to somehow pull it off. Um, but then the reviews came out, and the reviews all said it was terrible. And they described the premise of a commuter rail line through the center of the Earth. And I looked... Totally, they totally lost, I totally lost all interest in the movie at that point. <laughs> but then, you know, I wanted to talk about how Hollywood treats Philip K. Dick adaptations, and I figured, and I wanted to 
mention this movie and probably bash it. But I didn't want to do that without having seen the movie, so I went I went and saw it. Uh, and yet, it's not good at all. Now you uh, can freely bash it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Thanks for taking one for the team, Dave. Yeah, and I and I guess Matt's seen it too. So I think we're and John, we couldn't get John to go see it. <laughs> you really would have to pay me to go see a, a Len Weisman movie. Mm-hmm. You know? But I guess, but Matt and I haven't we haven't talked about it at all. So I guess Matt, what was what were your impressions of this movie? You know, there's a few ways to look at it, right? One is just to look at it as sort of your standard contemporary Hollywood action movie, just kind of divorced from all of the history of the uh, property. And then you can look at it in comparison to either the old movie, the uh, Paul Verhoeven, Arnold Schwarzenegger project, or the original short story. And in each of those contexts, it, you know, it sort of is a different thing. I thought as far as like contemporary Hollywood action movies go, it really wasn't that bad. I mean, it was devoid of interesting characters, and the action's completely absurd. But it moves at an interesting pace. The premise, assuming it's an original premise, is really interesting. And then there's one thing that Hollywood has sort of mastered, and it's making movies that look really good. Oh, well, I'm with you that the movie looks fantastic, and I think that's why the trailer is so impressive, because Mm -hmm. it looks great. The set design is great. The robots look cool. I mean... And unlike Alistair Reynolds in our interview, I was totally fine. I'm totally fine with the concept of doing a Total Recall remake because I think the original is equal parts brilliant and ridiculous. And I would be happy to see one that where they kind of took out some of the ridiculous stuff and put in stuff that made more a little bit more sense. But what drove me crazy about this one is that they took out some of the ridiculous stuff like the machine that creates an atmosphere on Mars in 45 seconds. But then they put in equally ridiculous stuff like hmm. the commuter rail line through the, <laughs> through the center of the Earth. But even more frustratingly, they took a lot of things that actually made... They took like the five things in the original movie that actually made sense hmm. and screwed them up. It's just like one missed opportunity after another as far as I'm concerned. The basic idea is that chemical warfare has made the entire surface of Earth uninhabitable with the exception of Great Britain and Australia. and so. Great Britain's like the overworld, and Australia's like the underworld. And so people commute through the center of the earth on this train to, um, I know, Makes um, sense. <laughs> to go to work in Great Britain I instead, of, instead <laughs> of in Australia. Because, you know, it's much cheaper to dig through the center of the earth than it is to build a factory in Australia. Obviously. Obviously. <laughs> um, so Colin Farrell's character lives in Australia and then commutes every day to his manufacturing job Mm -hmm. in Great Britain. I see. The big problem with the movie for me, and this this was true with the first one as well, is that the moment he goes into the machine and recall, the movie ends for me. It is totally unambiguous to me that he gets lobotomized at the end of the film and the whole, and the whole movie is a dream. And so any, anything that happens inside the actual action events of the story, um, have zero tension for me. Well, if you if you're curious, you can go back and listen to episode 18 where we discuss total the original Total Recall in probably too much detail. <laughs> but my feeling about the original movie is that it should be the case that it's ambiguous that you don't know whether he's in the machine or or the stuff is actually really happening, right. but that actually neither possibility makes any sense whatsoever. That mm-hmm. that the movie is just this huge mess of contradictions. 
That might actually work, sort of, in this one. I mean, what is? there's nothing that happens before he gets plugged in that would lead you to think he's already a spy, right? No, Yeah, nothing. So that's actually an improvement in my mind. In the original, there are hints that he, uh, that he was a spy before he goes to recall? Yeah, like, he, you know, his, his wife gives him a really suspicious look before he goes oh, to recall, and his yeah. co-worker gives him suspicious looks before he ever goes to mm-hmm. recall and stuff like that. But also, I guess, Matt, let's talk about, I mean, in the original movie, Recall is sort of an evil corporation. Mm-hmm. And in this, it's more of a, like... Massage parlor. Yeah, massage parlor, basically. <laughs> uh, I actually thought that was kind of nice. I, I kind of liked, you know, I was down well, with that. Well, it has, actually, a lot of the, a lot of the set design um, and costume design sort of makes it reminiscent of, like, old opium dens, mm-hmm. where I actually think it's probably the closest real-world analog to Recall. The idea that a customer would come in, be given a really gentle experience from the hostess, be eased into a room where you could lay down, kind of inhale some sort of psychotropic substance, and then go to a different place that's not your real life. Okay, and how about the fact that the city, like every city in every science fiction movie ever made, looks exactly like Blade Runner? There's two, right? There's actually, there's two cities. There's the Blade Runner city, and there's the Mini- Minority Report city. And every single city looks exactly like one of those two, right? Either mm-hmm. it's this seedy underworld where everything is sort of pseudo-Asian and um, it's dark, it's always nighttime <laughs> and um, and it's really crowded and people are shouting and selling ducks in the windows. And then the other city is the sort of like flying cars, every building is white, big public fountains, tons of glass that you can break, um, <laughs> and that that city. And so, you know, so the Great Britain city is the Minority Report city, and the Australia city is the Blade Runner city. Alistair Reynolds alluded in the interview to the fact that the short story we can remember for you wholesale bears very little resemblance to Total Recall. Philip K. Dick's writing is much more cerebral than any of the Hollywood adaptations. I think the way that you can characterize a Philip K. Dick movie is by taking a kind of mind-bending premise that he sets down and then turning it into an action movie. Yeah. Because none of his books or stories are actually action-packed stories. I know, it's completely ridiculous that there's all these action movies based on his stuff. (laughs) I mean, I think it's probably Blade Runner's fault, really. I mean, because, I mean, of all his stories, Do Android's Dream of the Electric Sheep had the most of that aspect to it. And, I mean, it's, it's not a very faithful adaptation, but it's, I mean, it's, it's like really faithful compared to most of the other right. adaptations, you know? So, it's loosely a detective story. Yeah. And so he's pursuing people and interrogating them and people get shot. Those are sort of the characteristics of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep that get carried over in Blade Runner. But yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Because of that sort of first foray into the genre, it uh, has created this sort of expectation that, oh, you know, if you take this premise, and Hollywoodize it, it could be a really successful movie. And what's interesting is that I actually think that in a lot of cases, they make really successful movies. Well, I mean, well, really people, successful people. You know, well, I mean, everyone everyone has their own opinions on each of these movies. You know, and I haven't like I haven't seen Minority Report since it came out yeah. in the theaters, but I mean, I really enjoyed that movie. You know, in preparation for this panel, if I can just rant for a minute, um, I was gonna I was like, oh, like I'll rewatch some of these movies, you know, and I'll see some of the ones I hadn't seen before. And uh, and actually, I was like, oh, and I'll, I'll read some of the stories that I hadn't read. 
Because you know a lot of these, a lot of these, are, or several of these, are actually based on stories. They're they're not like important Philip K. Dick stories. You know, like Minority Report is. Duane Joy's Dream is important. Second Variety, kind of. Um, I mean, we we can remember before you wholesale is, but like Paycheck, Imposter, The Golden Man. Oh no, The Golden Man is right. I really like that story. Okay, uh, I mean the Adjustment Team though, like that's very minor Dick. So I was I was trying to find this stuff and. Like, I couldn't rent Minority Report digitally. Like, I mean, I would have had to go find a DVD somewhere. The only thing that I actually could rent was Paycheck and Next. And apparently Next is so terrible that you shouldn't even watch it for something like this. And so I actually did rent Paycheck and I and I watched most of it. I couldn't actually bring myself to finish watching it because it's pretty terrible. But, but yeah, just like I was just, like, really surprised and disappointed that, like, I... I mean, in this age, right, like, I can't just go and get... Like any of these movies, I can't just rent one of these movies. There were several collect, there sort of like omnibus collections released a a while ago of of Dick's stories, and they very deliberately put one of the movie adaptation Mm -hmm. stories as like the headlining story in each copy. So to get like, if you wanted to get the Minority Report story, we can remember it for you wholesale. Yeah. Um, and there was another one. If you wanted to get those three yeah. stories, you had to buy three different I, I know there I know there's one that has Paycheck as the headliner, and there's one that has Minority Report as the headliner. Right. I've seen those. And yeah, I mean, I mean, despite as, as big as, like, a big a deal as Dick is, it's like, you know, I mean, still, you go to the bookstore and you look for these things, and right. it's just like, I mean, it's really hard. Like, if you just want to read the stories that are, the movies are based on, it's like, good luck. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, the adjustment team you can actually find online, but, oh my god, that story is terrible. Well, but we should say, I mean, Philip K. Dick had, I think, the most brilliant mind for coming up with ideas of anyone I'm familiar with. I mean, the guy could just come up with amazingly good ideas. His plots were often completely incoherent. And so, like, adjustment team, that's a really good idea, I think. You know, a guy shows up late to work one day and finds that these teams of people he never knew about go around manipulating things and changing details. You know, and if you fall out of your normal routine, you might catch a glimpse of this world of people who modify the world behind the scenes. I think that's a really cool idea. And they actually made it into a really good movie called Dark City. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, not literally adapted, but you know. no, no, no. But they took, I mean, I'm sure whoever made, you know, yeah. the, the people who made Dark City got the idea possibly by way of uh, the Twilight. I think it was made into a Twilight Zone episode. Mm-hmm. Got the idea from there. Unfortunately, the movie that was made out of Adjustment Team, the Adjustment Bureau, I thought was just really boring. Actually, though, the adjustment team was like, I mean, I couldn't even get to the plot of the freaking story because it was so badly written. Philip K. Dick is sort of notorious for not having a good pro style along mm-hmm. uh, among a lot of people. I actually kind of like his pro style. I mean, it's very, a lot of short sentences, very direct, not lyrical at all. Mm-hmm. But it, the pacing is very fast. You know, I mean... A good, say, 80% of what I read, I'm just bored reading these paragraphs because they might be beautifully written, but they're just boring. And Philip K. Dick's stories, I mean, especially in the short stories, you know, they're 15, 20, 25 pages long, and man, you can just blow through those things. Mm -hmm. And often the characters are bad, particularly the female characters, the dialogue is bad. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's just a lot of stuff that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But there's Mm -hmm. just cool idea after cool idea after cool idea, and they come every couple pages, and uh, the prose doesn't bore you uh, in between the good ideas. I think that's what it has going for it. With most 
movie adaptations, when they completely change everything from the source material, I'm always like, oh, why did they just, why didn't they just do it the way it was written? It was fine the way it was written, and they've just completely screwed it up. With a lot of these Philip K. Dick stories, you read the story and you're like, okay, I can see why they had to change this. But they screwed it up, you know, they just took something that didn't work and they made it not work in a completely different way. Yeah. But I can totally understand the need to say we have to change this. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, the climax of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is basically him hanging out with a turtle on the side of the road, right? Like... (laughs) It's actually it's a it's a isn't it a frog? I actually really is like it that. A frog? Yeah. It's right. It's like some <laughs> amphibian on the side of the road. Like they're hanging out, and that that like that's the climax of the of the book. God, but no, but uh, Matt, that's so creepy though. Oh my god, you you see this a little bit in Blade Runner because I think he asks, "Is that a real owl or something?" Right. Um, but in the book, uh, there are basically no real animals left alive, and so everyone buys these fake robotic animals as a status symbol, and everyone just kind of there's this societal agreement not to to pretend not to know that your neighbor's animals are all fake and so at the end the guy has found what he believes to be a real frog and he's he's thinking about how famous and rich he's going to be and then it just turns out to be a robot frog and it's all it's i don't know there's something about that moment i've always just found really really creepy right it's so but it so it it works in the context of the book but if that was the climax of the movie (laughs) like (laughs) what would people walk out of the theater we'd be like ridley who Right, exactly. We would all be saying Ridley Who. So you you said you read A Scanner Darkly as well as seeing the movie, right? Right. So uh, is that one more faithful than others? I mean, I haven't read it, but I, I got the impression that that one was sort of more... Yeah, I should say, I read all the Philip Dick stuff back in high school and college, so I don't remember perfectly everything, but A Scanner Darkly is, I would say, is far and away the most faithful adaptation of anything I can think of. I seem to remember a lot of Philip K. Dick's novels, they get really, really weird and trippy toward the end. And I think they might have toned st- some of that stuff down. But it, it's fairly faithful, and it's, it's much more faithful in the, in the tone, the sort of just sort of weird, drugged-out, paranoid tone, and that the main character is just sort of like this schlub, and he's just kind of going through his daily grind and feeling powerless and confused. Um, and he doesn't he doesn't know kung fu, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, if Scanner Darkly though is the most faithful adaptation of his work, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly Next is the least mm-hmm. faithful. Uh, this is based, like, supposedly based on a short story <laughs> called The Golden Man, which is really cool. It has a, a premise I've never seen before, and which would be amazing on screen. Which is there's this sort of alien creature which sees the future as branching possibilities. I've always sort of imagined it like the eyes of an insect or something, where there's all these thousands of facets, and it sees a different version of the future in each one. And so it can kind of move through time, picking the futures it wants to end up in. And so like, there's a scene where they have it cornered in a hallway, and they're just all shooting machine guns at it. And it can just dodge all the bullets, because it just weaves in and out of futures in which it's not, you know, improbably not hit. And so it's just impossible to, to capture or kill. And then the movie, it's just like Nicolas Cage is a psychic, basically. I mean, it has no resemblance to the story whatsoever. <laughs> At this point, it seems like they'll just option some random Philip K. Dick story just to put his name yeah. on it, uh, just yeah. to sort of cash in on the, the cachet of Blade Runner, etc. I just think that Paycheck is the apotheosis of a movie ruined by Hollywood's fetish for turning hmm. them into action movies. Uh-huh. Because, again, it's a cool premise. This guy did this job, 
And the agreement was he would work at this job for a couple of years, and then they would wipe his memory of it to preserve their corporate secrets. And then he he discovers that instead of the payment he was expecting, he somehow arranged to give himself just these randomly random objects. And that's I think that's a really cool, intriguing premise. But this guy, he's not a super spy or anything, but you would think he was from the way the movie plays out. He like can fight with a bow staff, and the the part I remember in particular, if I'm remembering this right, isn't there a scene where a bad guy is holding a gun on him and he has his gun up in the air and he ejects the magazine and sort of kicks it onto an electrified rail causing an explosion that distracts the guy or something. There's something like that. It's just, there's just like stuff like if Jason Bourne did this, I would be like, huh. give me a break. Yeah, you know, the yeah. fact that this is random guy does this stuff is just totally ludicrous. There's a scene in the movie where they inject him with something and they say, okay, at this point on, from this point, you know, we're going to erase everything in your memory after this. And then so, like, once the job's done, you're going to reset to this point. And it's like, okay, that's cool. But then they inject him, and then the movie continues. It's like, no. It's like when you do that, the movie needs to pick up right when he wakes up on the other side of this, and he doesn't know what the hell is going on. That's how you make that movie. I actually had exactly the same comment about Total Recall, if you'll remember, that you know, there's there's also there's a similar thing in Total Recall where Arnold Schwarzenegger is knocked out, and then you see what happens after he's knocked out. You see, you know, mm-hmm. you see him, what's going on around him as he's unconscious, and there should never be anything like that in yeah. a Philip K. Dick story because it should all be from the point of view of the character because that's the whole point of the story. Mm-hmm. That was every moment that really failed for me in the remake. They're constantly cutting away to other characters. And it's funny because early in the movie, I was watching Colin Farrell's commute to work and I was just like, we're going to be with this guy for the entire movie. Like, I just felt that. And then it immediately betrayed it. Uh, Immediately. (laughs) And Minority Report, it was like, I mean, there's some, there's some cool stuff in there. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, no, at the time it, it was praised heavily for its use of in development near future technologies. mm -hmm. Yeah. From the, you know, self-driving cars to mm-hmm. the six sticks. The part where he's walking through the mall and the scanners are reading his retina and giving personalized ads for him. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're, we're not far away from that. No, any, like... anyone who's, who goes on Facebook knows. That. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've always said that I think that crime stories or mysteries and science fiction go really well together because the sort of structure of the mystery story is very clear and it's something that everybody knows. Whereas the worlds of science fiction are sometimes hard to deliver in a complex plot. Very quickly, you can come up with a number of, you know, sort of classic science fiction and fantasy texts that have these sort of like almost whodunit plots at the center of them. Um, I think that's another thing that Minority Report does really well. I think I might actually disagree with you though. I mean, that that's true or that it works? That it works in Minority Report. Yeah, because to me, the, the, again, the premise is absolutely brilliant. You know, you have these police who go and arrest people before they commit their crimes, and then what are the implications of that? But then, rather than dealing with the implications of that, the movie is this incredibly overly convoluted, preposterous mystery story. Yeah, and then it turns out, you know, they, the happy ending is they get rid of the pre-crime thing, so people can go back to killing each other. It's just it's just sort of that thoughtless, the technology's bad, here's a way it might be misused, so let's get rid of it. But in the original short story, the happy ending is that the pre-crime unit is saved, right? 
Mm-hmm. And I think it's just that just sort of tells you everything you need to, need to know that in the movie, <laughs> the happy ending is that the pre-crime unit is destroyed. That contradiction is like really interesting in terms of the ambiguity and, and complexity of the moral question that's in the story itself. What is the right answer, right? If mm-hmm. it's dismantled, people go back to killing each other. If it's saved, people are being convicted of crimes that they haven't committed. Mm-hmm. And so there is no right answer. Although one may feel unsatisfying to some people and the other may feel unsatisfying to others, in both cases, it's just a sign of the brilliance of that premise. Well, I mean, it's kind of uh, awesome and awful at the same time. I mean, awesome from uh, sort of a cynical point of view, but like how often that happens in Hollywood where like they'll they'll adapt something, whether it's Philip K. Dick or something else, but they adapt something and like actually completely miss what the original author was going for mm-hmm. with it. And so it's like, and then so to actually do that where, you know, you get to the end of the story that you're, you know, you adapted the story and then, and then you actually have the opposite happen at the end. It's like, what do you, why, why do you do that? Okay, so let's see. We still haven't talked about screamers or confessions of a crap artist or imposter. I have not seen imposter or confessions of a crap artist. I've never heard of either of those movies. Yeah, <laughs> I've actually seen imposter. I don't. I mean, uh, it's been a long time though. I don't really remember. I mean, I, I remember Gary Sinise is in it. I remember it wasn't very good. I haven't read the story. I haven't seen or read confessions of a crap artist. Um, Ellen Zatlow was saying it was pretty good and worth tracking down, but I mean, I haven't seen it. I'm pretty sure Confessions of a Crap Artist is one of the literary novels that mm-hmm. Philip K. Dick yeah, wrote. I believe so. It's not science fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so let's talk about Screamers, which is a sort of schlocky kind of grade B horror science mm-hmm. fiction movie that is yeah, never... So, what? Not sort of. <laughs> which is very, indubitably very a schlocky horror science fiction hybrid. But is really, there's something just really unsettling about this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's based on a really pretty terrific, I think, a short story called Second Variety. I think that the elements of this story have been done, have been imitated so much that, that both the story and this movie are pretty predictable at this point. Uh, essentially, the, the future of the Terminator franchise, I have to believe, was lifted straight out of Second Variety. It's basically, there's a, a world that's completely been post-apocalyptically devastated by nuclear war and the remaining survivors are still fighting this this war and huddle in bunkers and create ever more complex machines that they send out into the wasteland to fight each other and any survivors and they eventually start making these robots to be indistinguishable from human beings i would just say about screamers that i think that could have actually been like a like a really great entry in the canon if um if that was done up as a movie really like with real hollywood budget and everything and with a real director like i think that could have actually been quite good so let's talk about how we rank these uh philip k dick adaptations mm-hmm. against each other blade runner i think has got to be number 1 yeah so i think i'll disagree with that but far and away number 1 with a huge gap between that and number 2 i think <laughs> Uh, and I mean, I'm not even I'm not even like the world's biggest Blade Runner fan or anything. I mean, I, just, I mean, it's a really good movie. I, I don't love it like some people love it, but I mean, it's I think it's obviously clear in a way the best Philip K. Dick adaptation. It's a classic, you know. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's a cult classic in the in the best way, and its place in the canon is really you know sort of locked. So yeah, I'd have to agree as well. Okay, so for number two, 
Uh, I could see somebody making a plausible case for Total Recall, Minority Report, or Scanner Darkly. Are there any other movies that anyone would even plausibly make a case for being number two? No, I don't think so. I mean, I would probably go with Total Recall, although, I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a pretty weak vote for it, I think. I might go with Scanner Darkly. I'd have to see it again. I, I only saw it the one time, and I mean, I remember thinking it was cool and it was, it was, it was interesting, but, um, and, and as you said, it's certainly a, a like, seems to be a, a, a very faithful adaptation compared to any of these other ones, but, those are the only options, I think. And I don't think Minority Report should be in that conversation. But um, and, and the thing is, it's, it's like I don't even know where to put it. I mean, it's like I, I was unsatisfied with it when I saw it. But I mean, I, like I said, I, I would kind of like to re- rewatch it. it. It deserves points for being visually interesting and, and having an yeah. interesting future depicted and everything. But I really, I mean, I really like Minority Report. But it's so different from Scanner Darkly. I'd probably have to put them as tied. Just because they are radically different and interesting in totally different ways, and visually interesting in really mm-hmm. different ways. But if you know, if you put a gun to my head, I guess I'd say Scanner Darkly because there's just fewer movies mm-hmm. that are like that, and then Minority Report right behind it, yeah. and then Total Recall because mm-hmm. it's like I mean that movie has a big helping of melted cheese like, <laughs> all over. That's true. It. That's true. And I mean, I think that's part. I mean, my fondness for it is probably partially due to you know growing up with it and and having seen it a million times when I was a teenager or whatever. So. Yeah. I mean, when we rewatched it before doing the the previous episode, when we discussed it in detail, I mean, I, I admit it didn't uh, quite hold up to my uh, <laughs> my memory of it. But did you guys watch the commentary with no. Arnold and Par? Oh my God, they're like. <laughs> Uh, he's like, Ar- Arnold has no patience for people who think that it's ambiguous. He's like, of course I'm a spy. What do you mean? <laughs> it's not a dream. <laughs> and Paul Verhoeven's like, no, it's a dream. <laughs> <laughs> I actually saw, speaking of Minority Report, I, I was just reading that Steven Spielberg, that maybe the ending of that is supposed to be a dream. I don't know if you guys have heard of anything about that. No, no. You're talking about the end, like the helicopter shots to the cabin at the very end? Or essentially, the... I no. The thing I was reading, the, the theory is that the whole and essentially the whole ending is a fake happy ending that he's experiencing in lockdown. That's cool. That's um, a cool idea. And so apparently, you know, and the, you know, the last scene is this really cheesy Steven Spielberging, <laughs> Steven Spielbergian shot of the um, precogs living this idyllic life in a cabin somewhere. And apparently, when they re- when they released the DVD or Blu-ray or something. Spielberg went in and there was one line of um, voiceover that was kind of something bad and he took that out. <laughs> and so people think that maybe this is a hint that mm. he's going this, he's, he's trying to push it, nudge people even more in the direction of this is too good to be true kind of mm. ending. That's cool. Props to Spielberg if he did that. I <laughs> mean, it was, you know, Minority Report came out in the midst of a long line of like, you know, sort of good movie and then totally falls apart at the end into like, you know, saccharine kind of, mm-hmm. un, you know, unsat, you know, lack of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. But no, that's a cool idea. I mean, a lot of the adaptations of Philip K. Dick's movies sort of do this at the end is they, they put in that little question of, is this all a dream? Is this a drug fueled fantasy? Is the hero really a replicant? And that actually might even be what separates the good ones from the bad ones. I mean, the ones that are completely unsatisfying, right? Next, Adjustment Bureau, Paycheck. There's nothing ambiguous about them, right? They're just like, oh, there was this action story. 
and there's a happy ending, right? If I'm remembering all this right. And it's kind of like, yeah, well, whatever. It doesn't leave you any mysteries to ponder or anything like that. Okay, so are there any uh, any other Philip K. Dick stories or books that uh, you guys want to see filmed? Uh, well, I mean, I, uh, I'm i curious about there's a BBC adaptation of The Man in the High Castle, uh, theoretically, in development. Uh, I think Ridley Scott is actually involved. And uh, so, I mean, that, that seems like it would be interesting. And, I mean, I think, you know, miniseries adaptation sort of makes more sense for something like that. So... Well, I mean, you know, the I think that his, you know, magnum opus is his, like, God series, Valis and all mm. that. So, uh, you know, those, I mean, those are claimed to be unfilmable, but uh, who knows? You know, it could be a really interesting thing. I'd love to see more movies like that where they take something that's really ambitious and complicated and give it the $100 million treatment. Yeah, I mean, my favorite Philip K. Dick novel by far is The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. Uh, which is the scariest book I've ever read. It apparently scared him so much that he was never able to do any copy editing, editing on it because <laughs> he was just too scared to go back and look at it after he'd finished writing it. It, it. it Again, it would require, I think, pretty substantial adaptation to make a film out of it. But you could certainly take the basic premise and make a movie out of it. And it would be like a hundred times scarier than Alien if, you'd, if, you, <laughs> were to, if you were to do that story. The, the, the premise, basically, it's uh, about people who take these drugs and once you've taken this drug once, uh, the high never, ever wears off. Uh, it's the mm. hallucinogen. And so you keep thinking that you've left the hallucination and returned to, the, to reality. And you keep finding out over and over and over again that you're still hallucinating. And it never, ever ends. Hmm. That sucks. <laughs> <laughs> that would really be bad. <laughs> Actually, you know what I, I'd like to see? I want to see them make a movie out of Galactic Pot Healer just because I want to... I want to see them take a title like Galactic Pot Healer and make it into a movie. <laughs> well, they'd probably change the title, though. As, yeah, as, as they did so. with Do Andrews and Galactic Healer. Sheep, we can remember it for you wholesale, etc. Yeah. Although yeah, there I mean, is almost a, all of them, they uh, do, changed it pretty, uh, pretty wildly. They do a shout out to the title in the Total Recall remake. Do they? Yeah, there's, they, they, there's like a voiceover commercial for mm-hmm. Recall, and it's like the tagline of the, uh, of the company mm-hmm. Recall. We can remember it for you. It's like, oh, it's a little shout out oh, there. Huh. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. And it does kind of sound like a tagline to yeah, a company, yeah. like a commercial. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, Matt, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, guys. And thanks again to Alistair Reynolds for being our guest today. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. One advantage of doing that is that we do always post announcements about our upcoming guests, which gives listeners a chance to suggest questions that we should ask. So definitely follow us on Twitter at Geeks Galaxy, and find us on Facebook by searching for Geeks Guide to the Galaxy. And if you live in or visit the New York City area, you should also join our local meetup group, which you can find on Facebook by searching for Geeks Guide to the Galaxy NYC. Alright, so that was our show. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.